They can also email us if they so desire at pod. Oh, you know what? It's because relapse, you relapse. reset. No, you reset my brain with all that tequila. Wow. <laughs> Welcome to AT Banter, the podcast where we discuss anything and everything regarding the world of assistive technology. With our hosts, Steve Barkley, Rob Minot, and Ryan Fleury. Now, let's banter. Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. I am... Rob Minot, and joining me today on the Guitar Dungeon couch is Steve Barkley. Howdy do. And Ryan Fleury. Hey there. And we're sitting on couches. We are. Ryan was kind enough to switch around our configuration so that now we can record the podcast from the comfort of this lovely futon that I'm sitting on. Much Glad better like than those it. hard chairs. Mm -hmm. Terrible. Yeah. 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 Just so don't fall asleep. No danger of that. Because Excellent. we have an incredible show lined up today. We do. And unlike our anniversary show, this one will be done sober. Oh, okay. Yeah. Should we talk about our anniversary show? All I don't right. even know what there is to talk it, about. I but think it speaks for itself, doesn't it? It's going to speak volumes for itself. <laughs> I just don't know if any of it's going to be intelligible. <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I have to edit that later this week, and I'm. Good luck with that. Mm -hmm. I know, I know. So for those people who may be new to the show, we had our big one-year anniversary show over the weekend, and we decided that we'd have a few drinky poos as we recorded, uh, which looks great on paper, uh, not so good when put into practice, especially when some unnamed person brings tequila to the party. We won't say who that was. I feel no guilt. None whatsoever. I'm not ashamed. So, yeah, it was a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a little bit chaotic, let's say. What's, I don't know, what, what other adjective would you use to describe it? I wouldn't say it was chaotic. It could have gotten way out of hand. Yeah, it was slightly boozy. Yeah. It was boozy. <laughs> boozy. There was much aboozement. <laughs> <laughs> there was. We'll see how it turns out. So yeah, it might be a ten-minute show. It could be once we filter out all the slurs and not not <laughs> sorry not slurs but slurring. No, slurring, of course. Yeah. That's amusing. There was a lot of lot of slurring. Don't it, it's very hard to say Google Google when you've been drinking. <laughs> that's what I discovered. Google goggles. Google, yeah, especially Google goggles. <laughs> Google goggles are hard enough to say sober, that's but right. you get some drinks in you and oh, good luck. Yep. And it's also hard to remember 52 episodes. That's true. Uh, but we had a lot of fun. Absolutely. Uh, so, Ryan, tell us a little bit about who we are talking to today. Today, our guest is Eric Manser, who is a visually impaired triathlete and marathon runner who has used a new piece of technology called IRA to enable him to have sighted assistance remotely help him run the marathons and triathletes. So I'm looking forward to having him on. Yeah, this is it's going to be pretty cool. 
This uh, I watched the promotional video for the Iris system uh, before the show, and it is pretty cool. Have had you heard about this, Steve, before? I had heard about it. Yeah, yeah. I've I've never uh, I've never actually seen it in action, but uh, but I have heard about it. Um, I think we should also mention too that uh, Eric is uh, with the uh, IBM research team uh, that uh, ensures uh, IBM solutions are accessible too. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so we should talk to him about a little bit about that. As He's well. not just another pretty face. <laughs> Clearly not. Not like us. We are all just pretty faces. Pretty much. Now, have you has there have you ever seen anything like this Iris system? Are there comparable services that they've tried before, or is this thing? This is the first time I've seen it as a service. I mean, there's lots of people walking around using their cell phones and cameras to, uh, you know, call a friend and say, "Hey, you know, what's 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 this?" Yeah, but, but I thought I thought there was some there was another sort of a called, similar. Yeah, there was another app called Be My Eyes. That's it. That's which, what I'm thinking. You know, I don't know anything about it except there's an app called Be My Eyes. But again, you're connecting to somebody sighted, who can you know I think look through your camera and tell you what you're looking at. Right. But I think what makes this unique is that they've they've used they're using the Google Glasses as mm-hmm. one of the possible platforms for this thing. Um, which is nice. It's kind of nice to see the Google Glass, you know, being being utilized and being developed because it's a it's an incredibly powerful piece of wearable tech. It's just that, you know, it, it didn't really set the mainstream market on fire. But it might after the news at Google I.O. with the Google Lens. You tie yeah. that Google Lens into Google Glass. That's true. You know, yeah. you've got a very powerful piece of equipment. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I think, I mean, myself, I think it would be freaking awesome to have like a, a, a HUD, just like a video game. Heads up display. Just, yeah, yeah, just like look around and be like the Terminator. Yeah, <laughs> that would be handy. A wearable that people might actually use. But just think about it. Like think about where this technology could go in terms of like, if you could get to a point where, you know, Google Glass could, you know, translate on the fly, like you could literally be talking to somebody who's speaking Spanish to you and it would it would input that and then output into your heads up display what that person was saying, like a universal translator. Yeah, I actually... Uh, I don't think that's I, far I, off. Yeah, I actually just saw on Facebook uh, there was an ad for a little um, handheld device. Uh, you... you press a button you record what you're trying to say and it'll translate into uh spanish uh english of course um but it also does uh, i think mandarin cantonese and japanese and skype can do that now you know if you're talking to somebody in a different language skype will automatically translate that language so i'll be speaking english to somebody in france and they're getting the translation in French. They'll be speaking to me in French. I get the translation in English, and it's all done on the fly, real time. Oh, that's wow. so cool. Yeah. What a crazy world we live in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, geez, if it just keeps going, another 10 years, who knows where we're going to be? Absolutely. So uh, shall we invite uh, Eric Manzer into our crazy world? <laughs> I think we should. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. Well, let's just leap in then. So today we are very lucky to have with us uh, Eric Manser, who is a marathon runner and triathlete and also works for IBM Accessibility and just recently ran the Boston Marathon with some pretty cool tech. 
that that uh, we're kind of excited to talk to about today. Eric, thanks so much for joining Hello. us. Oh gosh, it's my pleasure, gentlemen, and congratulations on your uh, your anniversary. Oh, oh thank, you. thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that was. Congratulations on surviving our anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been one of the more heavily edited podcasts, I imagine. Yeah, we decided that we would uh, drink tequila while we recorded our anniversary <laughs> podcast, and that looked a lot better on paper than it did in practice. <laughs> so am I on the show immediately after the uh, anniversary episode? No, I think what, what we'll do is I think we'll post you on Friday, and I think we might post our anniversary show on the weekend. Oh, cool. So you, you're com- you come first. <laughs> well, that's a, a great milestone, and I'm I'm humbled to be on your show. Following, uh, you've you've been killing it with the uh, amazing guests lately, so I'm humbled to be here. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, Ryan Ryan is our uh, guest sign up guy. He's the one who chases them down and tackles them and that's hard right. ties them until they agree <laughs> to come on. That's right. Send them a hundred bucks each. <laughs> you know, but right. usually, you know, the funny part about it is it's usually not that hard. No. No, people usually say yes. We we've never really been turned down, have we, Ryan? Not yet. No, people well, just either ignore me, or <laughs> or they come on the show. Yeah, so. I guess technically ignoring doesn't count. That's right. right. <laughs> they never overtly it's, turn you down. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> they just don't reply. <laughs> All right, Eric. Well, let's uh, let's start with um, what exactly is your visual impairment? Uh, well, I have a uh, degenerative condition called retinitis pigmentosa, or RP. And I was diagnosed pretty young, actually. I was diagnosed at age five nearby here in uh, Massachusetts in, in, in Boston, where I, you know, near where I live, uh, with this condition that leads to blindness. And so when I was diagnosed, you know, it was really something that seemed so distant. Like I, I'd never, as a younger person, really considered myself even someone with a disability just because. You know, at a younger age, uh, the most noticeable symptom of RP was night blindness. And, you know, there are really in, in RP, there are a couple of symptoms that are notorious, like the uh, night blindness and the diminished peripheral vision. And so, um, you know, when I was first diagnosed, like my peripheral vision was still pretty good. And it was the night blindness that was really most noticeable as a younger person. And, you know, things like going to school dances or trying to go to the movies with friends and things like that. Uh, and so, you know, it wasn't until years later, and I'm, I'm 44 now. Uh, and, you know, over time, you know, certainly the peripheral vision kind of closes in gradually. And ultimately, you know, with, with people who have RP, you know, oftentimes what they'll notice is just the peripheral will close in until basically you have nothing left. And so I, you know, have definitely noticed that like all through even college, I I never really identified as someone uh, with a significant disability. It was more like this, you know, night blindness nuisance almost that (laughs) that was most noticeable. But, you know, get on, you know, after college and once I started in the working world and, you know, really started to notice notice some traumatic changes in, uh, in the, you know, level of impairment. Uh, and so, you know, I could actually drive a car until about 15 years ago, and I, I gave that up, you know, at a point voluntarily because it just didn't feel safe anymore. Uh, so really, my path to blindness has been kind of gradual over many years. And, you know, I've always joked that it kind of makes you very adaptable because you, you get used to seeing a certain way and all of a sudden it changes on you. And, 
you know, what I have now, I, I described if you were to look through like a drinking straw and if you cover the end of that drinking straw with wax paper. So I've got kind of a small straight ahead circle of, uh, of vision remaining. Uh, but, you know, have felt very grateful for the amount that I've had for as long as I've had it and, uh, and you know, optimistic for the future with uh, some of the exciting technology and advancements that we're seeing. So, Yeah, there's some pretty pretty cool research that's being done right now. Is there is there anything in particular that you're following? Any, any uh, researchers? Well, on the medical side, I mean, you know, over the last couple of years, there have been some promising results with things like gene therapies, uh, I've always had cautious optimism in the back of my head about, you know, stem cells and, and things like that. Um, you know, I guess over time, you know, over the years, whenever promising lab results have come on laboratory mice and things like that, like, you know, you, you learn to kind of, you know, let me you, not be skeptical, but, you know, not get too excited <laughs> because, you know, you recognize that, you know, when anything shows promise, it, it still takes many cycles and many years to actually reach, right. you know, fruition where where tr patients are actually being treated. So, you know, I, whenever something promising or exciting is announced on the medical side, I've kind of gotten to a point where I'm like, yeah, well, you know, that's exciting and it sounds good. And uh, I'll, I'll be excited to hear when uh, when they have something or <laughs> when something gets passed with that. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been a process. Yeah, it's a it's a long, long road from working with zebrafish to uh, human trials. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so let's talk about about your your athletics. Now, were you uh, were you a pretty big athlete as a kid? Well, yeah, I, I, as you know, again, at a young age, I had started uh, actually in swimming. And, you know, then I, I started swimming, I think when I was six or seven. Uh, so, you know, after I was diagnosed, and, you know, certainly still at a time where I didn't really see myself as anyone with a, a disability. Uh, and so I started swimming, and, you know, did that for a few years. And then I got on to high school, I think. And, you know, there were, you know, my high school didn't actually have a swim team and there were other school sports that, you know, seemed to have a lot more participants among my friends and, you know, things like playing baseball or uh, basketball, things like that. And so in my high school years, I actually deviated from swimming and tried some of these other sports and, uh, you know, found that over time with my visual condition, I, I found that, you know, some of these things, although I was able to do them initially, over time became a little more difficult. And so, you know, things like baseball, you know, I've, I have a very vivid recollection of, you know, the point where my vision had changed just enough to make baseball more difficult. And, you know, for a time there, I was doing very well and being able to hit the ball and field the ball with, you know, with relative ease. And then, you know, there was one distinct day where I was out in the field and, you know, noticed that I could hear the crack of the bat, but had no idea where that ball had gone. And it wasn't until I heard the thud off to my right and, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the remarks of people that, you know, spectators that were surprised that I wasn't able or, or didn't catch it. Uh, and so, you know, experiences like that or with basketball, you know, experiences in a dark or a dimly lit gymnasium where, you know, someone would pass a basketball to you and it would be bouncing off your nose because you're, you know, in this 
kind of poorly lit scenario. <laughs> and so, you know, over time, it, it was kind of like these sports that I had been able to do a little bit uh, gradually became more and more difficult or, you know, not, not possible any longer. And so uh, I gradually found my way back to swimming so that by the, my senior year in high school, I actually had taken swimming back up and found that I was, you know, even with low vision, was able to, to swim pretty consistently because, you know, there was some consistency there, like things like the markings on the bottom of a, a swimming pool that indicate the lane that you're in. Like they usually have the lines that run up and down a lane or, right. you know, the markings on the wall that let you know where to turn and things like that. And so, you know, it was almost fate, I guess, that I had started swimming, got away from it, but then by the end of high school, I uh, had kind of visually found my way back to it and, and ultimately was very excited and, and proud to uh, get a, a, a college scholarship just based on my ability to swim and, wow. and be, you know, a competitive swimmer. So uh, by the time I got to college, I was, you know, full on back into swimming uh, and that, you know, carried me through my uh, my collegiate career there. So, nice. yeah, it was it worked out. <laughs> So when did you sort of make the switch over to marathon running now, or did now, or did you, did you start or did you branch out into to, to the triathlon first? Well, no, it was, uh, I mean, I always considered myself a swimmer. I mean, I've, you know, my parents and my sister and myself, I was like the black sheep of the family cause I was the only one who swam and they were all runners. Like I was the only, you know, I was the oddball in the house. Uh, and so, you know, again, I went through college, you know, and here in the U.S., uh, NCAA, you know, Division One college swimming team and, you know, managed to, you know, compete on the team uh, through throughout college. And then by the time I got out of college, uh, I kind of had, uh, you know, developed a lot of this eating and drinking habits that, uh, that support uh, an active swimming lifestyle. Uh, but once the swimming went away, <laughs> it didn't take long, uh, until, you know, I noticed that I, you know, kept eating and drinking the same way, but, uh, I didn't have the activity to offset it. So, you know, within a year or two of getting out of college, I noticed I was about 70 or 80 pounds heavier than I had been. I know that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> and so at that point I, you know, as I was struggling to tie my shoe because my big gut was in the way, I said, this is crazy. You know, I, I used to be an athlete and, and so you know, it wasn't, especially around, you know, this was probably around the time I was giving up or getting to giving up driving. Uh, like it wasn't so easy to get to a pool anymore, but it was still pretty possible to go out and go for a jog. And so, you know, at, at this point, I kind of took up running uh, more for weight loss. And then you know, as, as time passed, I actually started to link up with other runners who were energized and enthusiastic. And, you know, before long and before I knew it, I uh, had actually my running for weight loss had kind of evolved into marathon running. Uh, and so, you know, it just came this sort of infectious activity that, uh, you know, I, I had reached a certain point where I, you know, if I missed a day of running, it, it got to where I, I felt out of sorts. And, you know, so it, it just really became part of my routine. Uh, and then, you know, from there it, it just, you know, again, became doing shorter races and evolved into marathon training and marathon running. And I, I did my first ever marathon in, in 2006. Now, when you were, when you were jogging and, and training, marathon training, 
what kind of barriers did you have in terms of with your with your visual impairment and how did you overcome those? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting how it happened. Like when I took up running for weight loss, again, I was still not fully, uh, you know, picturing myself as someone significantly impaired. But, you know, that was when I would go outside my door and run around very familiar roads, you know, that that, you know, were well marked. And, you know, at that time, I was living in a labor a neighborhood that was pretty low traffic. So it was pretty low risk. Uh, And you know, I hadn't really started to feel the effects of the, of the diminished peripheral field, you know, in, in my day to day that yeah. that much yet. So uh, it wasn't until I started doing some of the shorter races. And if you can picture in a like a road race, a running race in the very beginning, like at the starting line, it's like everyone is really packed in. Right. And, you know, before that gun goes off, that's where it's people you're almost like packed in like sardines and you know with a, a a dwindling peripheral field of vision that's where it becomes very very noticeable and you know so even though in my earliest races i wasn't running as i do today with a sighted guide helping me where we're each holding the end of a tether i was just running and once the gun goes off relying on the fact that we're all going in the same direction and you know so because I, I started to notice how significantly, you know, diminished my peripheral vision had become, uh, you know, I started doing things just naturally by, you know, just as a coping mechanism, I guess, of getting behind other runners who had no idea <laughs> that I was following them. Right. Uh, you know, but I would just get right behind someone who was going, you know, similar or, or you know, about the same pace that I wanted to be going and would just get close enough to the back of them that other people around us wouldn't be tempted to kind of, you know, fill that space or or jump between us or anything like that. Because, you know, at this point with my diminished peripheral vision, it was like, you know, anyone that came from the left or the right could, you know, it felt very much like they were appearing out of nowhere. And, you know, it, it could be very daunting and, you know, that's where you could lock ankles and things like that. And so, you know, I just kind of developed this coping mechanism of, uh, of following people who had no idea they were guiding me. <laughs> and it was uh, a few years after that, actually, after, you know, I, I had been running in that way. Uh, I started to actually meet other blind and visually impaired runners around the country and around the, you know, North America, really, that, you know, shared with me things like, you know, wearing markings that say visually impaired or blind or, you know, running with sighted guides. And, you know, so I started to learn about these things that, that other athletes in similar situations were doing and, uh, you know, kind of gradually found my way to that. And actually in the sport of triathlon, uh, which, you know, fast forward to 2010, I actually did my first triathlon as part of a group of visually impaired racers and the rules for visually impaired competitors in that sport require you to have a sighted guide from start to finish. And so, you know, in 2010, when I did my first triathlon with a sighted guide all the way through, you know, it kind of made me realize what I had been missing, you know, and, and gained an appreciation for the value of having a sighted guide just for everyone's safety, but also for awareness of, you know, what pace I was holding, right. you know, because the sighted guide could spot mile markers and reference the, the, you know, the time on their watch and, you know, read that information back to me. And I had just gone without that, <laughs> you know, that kind of information. And so, right. um, yeah, it kind of got to where, 
you know, I, I realized what I had been missing and, and got a taste for, for racing with, with a guide. And, you know, there was really no going back after you, <laughs> after you had the benefits of it. Okay, so I have to ask a question because I'm tired just listening to you talk about running and swimming. <laughs> Do you eat donuts and pizza? <laughs> well, it depends on, uh, you know, how serious I am in my training cycle at any given time. I, uh, you know, if I'm gearing up for something that I consider to be, you know, a kind of a key key event or a key race for me, I, I try and avoid those things. But, yeah, I mean, in the off season, all, all bets are off. I kind of indulge a little bit, so... Excellent. Ryan's just asking because he's a, he's a competitive eater. That's right. That's right. <laughs> he was going to challenge you. <laughs> well, I, I, I was probably, uh, you know, looking the part with my 80 pounds uh, heavier than I um, So in the, during the cycling um, part of the triathlon, uh, does your sighted guy, like, is it, a, is it a tandem bike then that you guys ride? Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, that was the, the big question mark I had when, you know, one of my other visually impaired friends suggested, I mean, you know, I had been running for a few years and, you know, I certainly had a swimming background. And so I had talked to some visually impaired friends and they were like, well, if you have the swimming background and now you, now you can run, you, you should be doing triathlons. And I was like, well, you know, that's all well and good, but you know, it's one thing if you're jogging at six or seven miles an hour and you trip over an orange cone or you you know hit a curb or something but that's a whole different story if you're on a bike at 30 miles an hour and right. it's like how do you how do you do that safely and so that's when i you know they turned me on to kind of the tandem cycling option and, and how people were racing these tandem bikes and you know once i uh experienced that i mean you know because i could drive for a time like it had been years since i had ridden a bike you know i mean basically since you know here in the states you get your driver's license at 16 and you know from 16 until you know however old i was you know nearing 40 in uh in 2010 like i hadn't ridden a bike at all and so when i finally got on the back of a tandem bike it was exhilarating it was liberating it was you know really quite an experience and especially where you know, in a running race where I'm basically locked on, you know, visually like locked onto the back of the person who's right in front of me, like to be riding on the back of a tandem bike and, you know, with what limited vision I do have to be able to kind of look around and take in the scenery as we're flying through, through space, you know, <laughs> on this, uh, on this, you know, fast moving tandem bike was, was kind of a thrill. So yeah, once I, uh, took part in that 2010, um, triathlon it was really you know it, it kind of like i was hooked so i definitely kind of got sucked into the triathlon lifestyle <laughs> now how does the sighted guide work um like do you guys train together ahead of time well, yeah in an ideal world that's the way it works um you know you know completely humbly and, and proud you know uh, i'm very proud to say that you know because i had a competitive swimming background and, you know, I became a halfway decent runner, you know, because the rules of triathlon require you to have the same guide from start to finish. Uh, early on in my triathlon career, it became, it, you know, it was noticeably pretty difficult to find a guide that would help me kind of push my pace. Uh, you know, I, I kind of quickly realized that my swimming friends weren't runners and my running friends weren't swimmers, right? right? So, you know, so someone that could help me be competitive at all three events and not, 
you know, be slowing me down on one and, and helping me race fast on another. Right. So, you know, it, it was kind of a challenge to find, you know, an athlete that could help me push my pace all the way through the, the swim, the bike and the run. Uh, and so it was an exciting moment and, you know, I've never been so delighted to find someone that could just destroy me at all three events as when I finally got linked back, uh, you know, the first person that I, I had guide me in triathlon was someone I had swam with in college. Uh, and he was, you know, he'd been doing triathlons for years and he was just, you know, really, really fast and, uh, competing on an amateur elite level. And so, you know, it was a thrill to find someone. And like I say, I've never been so happy to find someone that could just crush me at all three things. So, um, you know, since that time, and then, you know, again, that was 2010, but since then, uh, you know, I've got about a half a dozen guides that I can rely on, you know, at any given time that, you know, can help me push my pace and, and be competitive, uh, you know, depending on where and when the event is taking place, you know, I've got guides that come and, and fly to meet me for races and things like that. Uh, my guide, Steve, that I raced with in that, in that first, uh, triathlon or, you know, that first year of triathlon that was, uh, you know, helping me push my pace. Uh, he actually lives out in California now. Uh, but he, you know, he's able to come and, and meet me for races and things like that. So it, it's nice to have kind of a, uh, a group of guides that I can call on as needed, uh, depending on the, the timing and the circumstances. But yeah, it's, uh, it was kind of a tricky early on there. And is being on a tandem bike, is it challenging? Like, is it, because it looks, it looks a bit tricky, I have to admit. <laughs> it is just because you have to coordinate everything. Like every, you know, and basically communication is key. Uh, you know, it's funny because in many races, you know, we're very fast on a tandem bike. I mean, as long as it's a flat course or a downhill course, we're like a rocket ship because, you know, that's basically 400 pounds of person and bike, <laughs> you know, that's, that's moving right along. Right. Uh, and so you'll hear the offhanded comments by other racers, you know, saying things like, Oh, I wish I had another person or, you know, like, like we've got some sort of a, a an advantage. Uh, and then on the next uphill, all of a sudden these <laughs> other racers come blowing by us yeah. because you know, that's, that's where you're pushing 400 pounds of, of person and bike up that hill. And, you know, so it, it seems that it, you know, on the big picture, it all seems to come out in the wash. I think it's, you know, it's deemed uh, to be fair because, you know, if there are a lot of twists and turns in a race course, uh, you know, that's that you lose a lot of momentum there. And so when you come out of a, a twist or a turn, like you have to start building momentum again. And, right. you know, another thing is that we basically don't really ever stand up out of the out of the seat or, you know, off the seat or out of the saddle, as they say, so that you know, other racers on their individual bike, you know, when they're working a hill, they can stand up and really crank that hill where we basically remain seated. And so, I mean, there are a lot of differences in the tandem experience. Uh, and again, as I started to say, like, you need to coordinate everything. Like if my guide or, you know, on the tandem, they're, they're called the pilot or the captain. Like if, if he's going down to grab a, a drink, like a water bottle, you know, below him on the bike, like he has to let me know that he's doing that because, or, you know, vice versa. I need to let him know if I'm doing the same thing or if I just need to stand up briefly just to, you know, just for comfort or whatever, like all of that needs to be communicated because if it's not, then it throws off the whole rhythm of the bike. And, right. you know, it can, it, it takes a lot to kind of, uh, for the guides to kind of, you know, steer that 
you know, that big, <laughs> that big contraption uh, with all that weight on it, you know, so anything can throw that off. And before you know it, you could be off the road. So, <laughs> right. So between marathons and triathlons, what's your personal favorite? Well, I've, I've come to identify myself as more of a triathlete. Uh, you know, I still do marathons and, and participate in, you know, at least one or two each year, it seems. Uh, you know, here in the Boston area, I'm very active with a group, uh, you know, that was uh, originally uh, with Mass Association for the Blind. Uh, now, now Mass Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired, they have uh, what they call their team with a vision every year for the Boston Marathon. Uh, so I'm very active with them each year that, you know, just really humbled and, and thrilled, you know, that the blind and visually impaired field at the Boston Marathon each year just continues to grow and grow and gain momentum. Uh, also, every December out in Sacramento, California, there's the, uh, the U.S. Association of Blind Athletes has the National Marathon Championships here in the U.S. for blind uh, and visually impaired runners. So uh, that's one I usually try and hit each year as well. And, you know, again, anytime you have a big collection of, uh, you know, of blind and visually impaired athletes coming together like at these events, you know, the camaraderie and the shared experiences, I mean, it's you know, about so much more than just the race itself. It becomes, you know, just a sharing experience and, you know, really a, a moving. And in each of those instances, it's it's a weekend uh, full of activity and just, you know, networking and meeting other people and inspiring, you know, hearing inspiring stories from people from all over the world that are coming to participate in these things. And it, it's a thrill to be a part of it. Okay, well, speaking of the Boston Marathon, you just finished uh, the Boston Marathon recently. I did, yeah. I, uh, this, this year was actually my eighth time running the Boston Marathon, and I did it in an entirely different way this time around. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, have historically, as I mentioned, you know, run with sighted guides. Uh, and in the Boston Marathon, because it's a very, very large field and, and popular race like you know 30,000 runners all sharing one race course uh, can create some unique challenges uh, you know in most running races you know you might be a mile or two into it before the initial congestion or crowd starts to break open uh, but in the Boston Marathon that you can't count on that happening like <laughs> you know it, it's such a, a large field that you know you can basically run from start to finish and be surrounded by other runners. And so as someone, you know, with a diminished peripheral field, as, as I was describing, you know, kind of that packed in like sardines feeling that I was describing before never really breaks open. <laughs> and, you know, add to that the, the fact that, uh, you know, every mile in the Boston Marathon, they have aid stations or water stops on both sides of the road. And so... You know, you can count on every mile having a crisscross of, of runner traffic, you know, right. trying to get over to get to those water stops and, and you know, uh, creating, you know, kind of uh, additional challenges. So, you know, the Boston Marathon itself is uniquely challenging in a number of ways. And so it was a, a perfect testing ground uh, for an exciting new technology that I had learned about last year. Uh, and we, you know, really were excited about trying to put this uh, technology called IRA uh, through through its pace, paces and having kind of a challenging testing scenario for the technology at the Boston Marathon this year. So I was, 
uh, really excited to, to be able to take it with me on, on this year's Boston Marathon and try it out on the course. Okay, well, could you, could you step us through exactly what uh, IRA is? Sure. Uh, IRA, they, they build themselves as a visual interpreter for the blind. And the way it works is you have a, you know, like a wearable mounted camera. Uh, in my case, the, the camera was mounted on Google Glass. And so it was a head-worn camera that I had. And on my smartphone, I have the IRA app, uh, which allows me to connect with a sighted human assistant who is located somewhere else in the world. And as soon as I trigger the app and I'm able to connect with that sighted assistant, uh, they are you know, able to access the live stream video that's coming off of the camera that I'm wearing. And so typically, you know, the, the technology, and it's a pretty new technology, uh, but, you know, we've been hearing a lot about, you know, blind and visually impaired users getting great value from using IRA for things like grocery shopping or for getting help reading their mail or navigating the airport, things like that. Uh, so, you know, the marathon scenario was definitely not, <laughs> you know, one of the existing use cases that we were hearing about uh, and, you know, honestly, it was, we kind of went into the marathon challenge, so to speak, knowing that it would be kind of a extreme testing for the, the technology, right. you know, it's, it's not technology that was developed in any means to, to go out and run a marathon with. So we were kind of pushing the limits of it and, and we knew that going in. Uh, but you know, it was, you know, recognizing that, you know, IRA today is not a technology that I would simply hand to a blind person and say, here, go run a marathon. It was fun to imagine. Can you imagine if it could be that? Right. And so with the whole test in the Boston Marathon, you know, I was most excited about being able to come back and share, you know, what worked, what didn't work and, you know, have have some suggestions to bring back to the IRA team and say, you know, here's, you know, here's some areas that it, it could be bolstered or enhanced. And, and, you know, if you're able to do that, it, it might even push the technology to even bigger things. And so, you know, it was fun to actually take the IRA solution through the marathon experience and come back and share, you know, what, what maybe didn't work so well. And, and, you know, to be working with a team like the, the folks at IRA, uh, you know, one, one thing that I've noticed about them is they're very eager for feedback, you know, just from general day-to-day -day users, but also in the marathon case, they've been very, very receptive and, you know, welcome any feedback. And, you know, uh, it's exciting to, to know that they're interested in uh, possibly implementing some of the changes that came away from the, uh, the testing experience at the marathon. Now, you also used uh, a sighted guide as well as the IRA system during the race, did you not? Yeah, I definitely did. <laughs> we, we figured it would be a prudent move to, you know, still have uh, a sighted guide there physically with me. Um, plan B is always good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, where it was kind of an, un, you know, un, it was an unprecedented test, so... You know, we wanted to take all the same precautions we always have. You know, I did have a, an IBM colleague of mine named David Way who uh, who was there physically with me. Uh, we were each holding the tether, uh, and we each, all, you know, I, I still wore the blind bibs, and he wore the guide bibs. And so we took all the same precautions. Uh, but, you know, in the years past, I, you know, 
at times have had other uh, sighted guides with me as well. But this year, uh, we had a second guide, but it was Jessica in Ohio uh, accessing the IRA technology and, and helping provide you know, visual descriptions and, uh, and some guidance uh, that way. So I, I still very much consider that I had two guides on race day. Right. Uh, but I had one there physically and one there virtually with us. So it was a, a cool experience. So what kind of things worked really well? Uh, well, the things that worked really well were that, you know, it was almost like a fortuitous coincidence that, uh, you know, the positioning of the camera on the Google Glass uh, was is basically right above my right eyebrow. So uh, my preference at you know in running races for whatever reason, just you know like being right-handed or left-handed, I guess is is that whenever I run with a sighted guide, my preference is always to have my guide on my left-hand side. And so that's where David uh, you know has historically positioned himself physically. So he's running on my left. Uh, and we're each holding the end of the tether over there. So it worked out really well that the Google Glass camera was mounted over my right eyebrow because that kind of, you know, filled in uh, a space over there. It, it gave, you know, Jessica direct view to a, a spot where I am naturally vulnerable and especially in a, a crowded race like Boston. So having her be, you know, getting the video stream that that kind of came in from my right hand side worked out very well uh and you know the you know one of the limitations i guess of the technology that we noticed is that you know the the peripheral range of the camera though it's better than my own uh is still a little limiting right. like you know, there were times where Jessica did need me to kind of scan my head left to right, just as I would do naturally navigating on my own. Like, you know, she would ask me to kind of pan right or pan left uh, just to get a better or, or a fuller, fuller view. So that was one point of feedback that I brought back to the IR team and, and suggested if there's a way that they could, you know, expand the field uh, or the, you know, the range of vision of, of, of the camera that's being used. And so that, you know, they, they seem to take that and, and be looking into it. And so, you know, it was wonderful that Jessica was able to provide what I was calling like, you know, supplemental information, you know, especially in a challenging uh, situation like a crowded race course, you know, to have Jessica be able to say, okay, you know, you've got a runner on your right who's kind of drifting into your path. And, you know, otherwise, you know, if David on my left was, you know, negotiating a turn or, you know, moving to, to grab water for us or anything like that, if he was in any way otherwise occupied, uh, having Jessica feeding me information, you know, that, that was complementary to, you know, what, what David was giving me was very, very helpful. Uh, so, you know, if, if there were runners on my right, that were kind of drifting into my path. Uh, it gave, it gave me the opportunity to be like, you know, blind athlete or, you know, somehow alert them to the fact that I was behind them. And, you know, cause otherwise I, you know, very possibly would, you know, would not see them at all and, until they were basically right in front of me. And so, you know, another scenario was, you know, in the Boston marathon, we kind of stay right because there are water stops every mile on both sides of the road. My strategy has been to kind of follow the center yellow line that runs down the middle of the road. So you're kind of positioned, you know, in the least congested spot possible on that course. And so, 
there would be points where we might lose the yellow line if it you know got divided by an intersection or you know other markings on the road and so Jessica was continuously able to kind of you know point that out to me and and call out you know keep me on track in that way and, and kind of keep me moving uh, straight and you know to the strategy that we had kind of laid out right um, you know another limitation that that I brought back to the IRA team was you know the fact that Jessica couldn't hear David and David couldn't hear Jessica was a little limiting because there would be instances where they were both kind of trying to give me information at the same time and you know one couldn't hear the other so you know they they didn't know uh, so you know I you know ideally if uh, if this IRA technology ever becomes something that a blind person could go and use only that to negotiate a marathon course well then you know then it would be a non-issue but uh, you know, on, on the testing environment that we had, it was, you know, there were instances where David was telling me something and I'd be, you know, I'd have to be like, repeat that or, or you know, because uh, Jessica was speaking in my ear at the same time or something like that. So, you know, some other small limitations like that. Uh, but overall, you know, having the, the color commentary that Jessica was giving out on that course was very, very helpful. Uh, and, you know, again, David, as he always does, did a stellar job of, you know, kind of being my my main guy there in the in, in the physical form, <laughs> so it, it worked out very well on race day. So, is there is there much in the way of lag time between between the video feed? Uh, it's less than half a second, and it it's funny wow. how we came to realize that because uh, that was one of the race day realizations. To be honest with you, was that you know there is a lag and more of a lag than we had realized beforehand because I live in a kind of a quiet suburb about 40 minutes west of Boston and so any of the practice runs or the rehearsal runs that I did with Jessica leading up to the Boston Marathon were done on these quiet backcountry roads where she could be as descriptive and detailed as the IRA agents you know to their credit as part of their training they're they're trained to be you know they're trained you know they're almost given like introductory orientation and mobility training because they're, right. you know, they are working primarily with blind users. So they give sufficient detail in, in their level of description. That So, you know, in our test runs, our practice runs, I should say, out in these country roads, you know, Jessica could be like, okay, you've got a left-hand turn coming in about 10 steps or, you know, and just really give me a good description and, and talk me through it. And so, in that setting, we never picked up on any sort of a lag. You know, it, it seemed right. instant. Like when she would describe something, it seemed to co coincide exactly with when I was experiencing it. And so it wasn't until the Boston Marathon where all of a sudden you're surrounded by, you know, other athletes and it became very much a, a split second situation where, you know, an athlete could literally jump yeah. right in front of you. And all of a sudden, you know, something that was less than half a second in lag time became very, very noticeable. <laughs> I'll bet. You know, and so <laughs> that was part of the feedback that, you know, I, I actually, after the race, I did like a complete recap, which I, you know, would be happy to share with you guys, uh, maybe for the, the show notes or whatever. But, That'd be great. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was part of the feedback that I shared with the IRA team was that, yeah, I mean, you know, this uh, this little bit of lag made such such a difference in that split second scenario. So it was, uh, you know, something that we hadn't picked up on before, but definitely noticed in the race. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can see what you what you mean. I mean, it really was trial by fire because I don't think it gets much more chaotic than a, a marathon field like that. Well, the one blessing is that everyone is moving in the same direction. I mean, <laughs> it's <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah, but where you have people moving at different speeds, you have a lot of folks that are jockeying for position and yes. you know, eagerly trying to get you know either ahead of you or, or past you in some way. And so, yeah, all of a sudden it becomes very split second. So, yeah, made 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 a noticeable difference there. That's right. Jessica's like, oh, and there's a lovely water station there. Oh, Kenyon, Kenyon, watch out for the Kenyon. <laughs> Kenyon at 12 o'clock. <laughs> Absolutely. So were, were you at the uh, Boston Marathon the year of the bombing? Uh, I was, and I thankfully had uh, crossed, you know, about just about 10 minutes before the first explosion. Oh, wow. And, wow. yeah, you know, we had some, you know, obviously many people that were, you know, much more near the, uh, the the devastation and much more uh, directly impacted. Thankfully, that year, my wife and daughters, for the first time ever, uh, were actually viewing from the team with a vision viewing station, which is at mile 24 and not oh. right at the finish line, uh, because, you know, for years prior to that, they, they had been coming right to the finish line. So thankfully, that year, it worked, and uh, they were a bit removed from the chaos. But, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you Scary. know, definitely the, uh, the loudest – uh, noise I had ever heard. And then, you know, seconds later, the second one happened and, uh, you know, it, it was challenging to be visually impaired, uh, in that setting because you're, you know, my instinct was to want to, you know, I mean, this sounds braver than I, I feel like I am, but you know, you want to figure out how you can help or right. anything mm -hmm. you can offer in that situation. But, you know, my guide to his credit, you know, knew that, uh, you know, with my limited uh, abilities, uh, you might be getting in the way more than helping. And so we, we kind of uh, took our, our our path the other way and kind of tried to get away from the chaos and, and clear the area a little bit and get to safety. So it was, yeah, it was uh, it was something else, that that whole experience. And, you know, certainly everything that unfolded after that, it's uh, it's been yeah. unreal to, to see how everything played out. So, yeah, it was uh, quite a year, but 2014... Uh, remains one of my favorite years uh, of the marathon because it was such a such a spirit and a, yeah. you know a, a sense that you're reclaiming uh, you know and, and not letting the terrorism uh, win so yeah it was Absolutely. something to be a part of now are you already planning for next year's well the team at ira and my my friend suman who's uh the co-founder and ceo of ira actually uh is already talking about me doing it again with uh, you know, to, to experience the, the improved or, or the enhanced features that are added as a result of this year's test. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that if, uh, if we're able to put that together. But, you know, I've, I've got actually a, a bigger uh, challenge uh, between here and then uh, in October. I've actually signed up for my second full Ironman distance Ooh. triathlon, which I'm, I'm looking forward to. So uh, just getting underway with the, the serious training now uh, in, in preparation for that. So, so no donuts and pizza. <laughs> I was just going to say that. I'm, I'm back off the, uh, the, the junk food. Yeah. Now, now we'll are, look out on Thanksgiving. <laughs> now, are you, yeah. gonna, are you planning on using the IRA system for that? Uh, there's really no practical way at this, at this point, uh, unless they're working on something I'm not aware of, uh, to be able to swim with it as oh, well as, point. you know, uh, I mean, I'd love to get to a point where I could 
ride a solo bike <laughs> with the iris solution but uh yeah i mean the the swim and the bike uh you know we haven't done much testing with with it uh right. in those scenarios but yeah so i don't don't currently i mean i i use the iris solution you know pretty regularly in my day-to-day uh and so i'll certainly use it you know around uh you know race morning and things like that but yeah uh i haven't uh really been able to to use it in triathlon training or racing yet so so what are some examples of your use of it day to day well day to day i actually get a lot of use out of it uh you know for a, a lot of not navigational assistance in kind of just like the regular <laughs> scenario where you know oftentimes you know even though i live outside of the city uh, oftentimes I'll need to go in for, you know, business meetings or, or customer meetings, things like that. And at times, you know, I, I rely on public transportation to get there. Uh, so it's very helpful in a public transportation setting where, you know, I can have an IRA agent with me, uh, helping me find an available seat on the train for, as an example, uh, or if I'm going to a meeting that's happening somewhere in the city that I'm not familiar with. Uh, oftentimes, you know, actually last fall, uh, there were a couple of times where, you know, the IRA agents kind of pulled me out of a jam and, you know, saved me from being late, uh, because I was going to places that I hadn't been before. And so, you know, the ability of the IRA agent, you know, once I connect with them to, you know, be able to tell exactly where I am located, you know, using the GPS, but also, uh, be able to give me turn-by-turn directions uh, of where I'm, I'm heading uh, is very, very helpful. Um, you know, they've done a lot to really kind of continue to develop the solution. Like recently, they've added functionality to it uh, where, you know, an IRA agent, when I'm connected with them, uh, can call an Uber on my behalf. And, you know, as someone with low vision, something that's been particularly challenging for me with trying to use the Uber app, you know, I mean, there are some minor, you know, uh, scenarios in the Uber app itself where contrast may be a little uh, lacking or or things like that. So, you know, but I I have historically been able to kind of pick my way through the Uber app to the point that I can call for a ride. But one thing I haven't really been able to do is – you know, once I'm alerted that the the ride has showed up and, you know, that they've arrived and are there to pick me up, like so much of the information that the app gives you, like the Uber app gives you, is about like the color of the car, the make and model of the car, the license plate number. Like this is all stuff that I'm not really able to act like right. use. Right. Uh, and so my strategy in the past had been to, you know, as soon as I call for an Uber ride, like, you know, to, I would either call or text the driver once once that's identified, and say, you know, I'm I'm blind and I use a white cane. Uh, if you can look for me, so that I don't have to look for you. Well, now with the Iris solution, they have the ability to call an Uber on my behalf, and as soon as all that information comes up, the color, the year, make and model, the license plate number, they're able to once the driver arrives, kind of guide me to where they are, right. and they can, you know access the camera on my on my glass and say okay that's the car right in front of you you know take 10 steps straight ahead and and that's your that's your ride and so you know that's been a huge benefit um you know to to not have to you you know just to to kind of navigate to the uber once it shows up uh has, has been a wonderful improvement and so you know things like that also you know 
things like at a grocery store or in my case recently, like at a pharmacy, right? Like if I, you know, on, on Mother's Day, like, you know, I, like I, I think I mentioned I have a wife and two daughters and, you know, I used to rely heavily on my daughters, like they're 11 and eight years old, like to come in with me and help me pick out a, a greeting card for Mother's Day, right? Right. Uh, well, well, now, you know, the IRA agent can kind of help me do that. And so, you know, it's not that my daughter's ever complained about helping me, but, you know, you'd, you'd like to feel like you can kind of do things without leaning so heavily on your family at times, right. you know? <laughs> so, uh, so the ability to, to kind of go off and, and do it on my own without leaning on my family. And, you know, even though they're, they're wonderful and a, a great support network for me, it, it's nice to be able to, you know, still feel some sense of independence in doing these types of activities. But even, you know, another example with the IRA solution is that my oldest daughter's soccer game, like, you know, I used to sit on the sidelines and, you know, kind of be able to generally with the amount of vision I do have follow the action a little bit. Like I could tell where the cluster of people was, but, you know, I wouldn't not really be able to distinguish my daughter from any of the other players, you know, you know, on, on her same team with the same color jersey. But, you know, if I am on with a new, an, an IRA agent and I say, OK, my daughter is, is number 11. Uh, and you know, there she is and that's her Jersey. Like they can kind of, you know, as long as I kind of keep move my head with the activity out there on the field, like they can kind of tell me, Oh, she just made a shot on goal or, wow. you know, give me kind of play by play details a little bit. And so, you know, all of these new and different, <laughs> and you know, there are so many new subscribers to the Iris solution that, you know, we're hearing new and different use cases like this every day where right. people are just finding really interesting ways of using the technology. So it's, it's really something to be a part of it. It's, it's kind of a cool thing. Yeah, it's very neat. Can you use Ira without Google Glass? You can. And actually, when I started using Ira last year, I uh, it, the way it worked out, actually, Simon, the, the CEO there, and I were both part of the same technology panel that happened nearby here in Cambridge. And you know, he like we were both on the panel talking about, you know, different aspects of technology. But at the end of it, he and I got to talking. And as someone who was losing vision myself, he was describing, you know, what Ira is and what their team was doing. And, you know, so I was intrigued and fascinated. And so, you know, by last uh, late summer or, or early fall last year, I actually became an early kind of a, a beta tester for them. Uh, so I started using the technology, uh, testing it out, uh, you know, the second half of last year. And so all through last fall, I was only using it on my smartphone. Uh, and I, I hadn't even received the glass part of it or the, you know, the, the wearable camera part of it yet. So, you know, at that point, it was basically you just once you trigger the app, uh, it accesses your smartphone camera. And so. Mm -hmm. You know, as long as you're holding that camera up in front of you uh, and you're connected to an IRA agent, like they're able to see what's what's coming through your smartphone camera, right. uh, which was great. And again, very compelling, you know, situations. And again, you know, that, that's how I was using it when they pulled me out of those jams where I was going to be late for meetings and things like that. But the thing about that was, you know, because I use a white cane. Uh, that's one hand that's occupied. And then mm -hmm. I've got, you know, my second hand holding the phone now. So you, you have no hands left. Right. So by the time it got to be January of this year and I, I received the Google Glass that went along with it, uh, you know, kind of that wearable element, the uh, that, you know, sure. kind of freed up my hand. So it 
you know made it more of a hands-free experience which which really just enhanced it as well so it was uh yeah i mean it, it's possible to use it with only the smartphone app and, and the smartphone camera but you know the, the benefits of uh being able to wear the camera and, and you know have them see what you know what's directly in front of you from that is uh, is very helpful as well right and is there a cost for the service uh, there is. It's a uh, subscription-based service, and uh, you know they have tiered pricing. It's almost like you know buying a data plan. Like they give you X number of minutes uh, for a certain dollar value per month, and you know again there are tiers. I, I know I'm on the entry-level plan, um, and I I want to say like the uh, I forget how many minutes I get, and I haven't exceeded them yet, uh, and I use it pretty regularly, so it, it's not bad. Uh, but it was like 89 US dollars per month uh, for the entry service. And then, you know, it goes all the way up to unlimited minutes, which I think is 199 US per month. Uh, and, you know, I know that the team at IRA uh, is very aware and uh, conscious of the fact that, you know, a, a kind of a monthly subscription like this, um, you know, is uh, can be kind of cost prohibitive for, for some users. So they're very sensitive to that fact. And uh, as they continue to roll out the technology, uh, they just got, you know, a, a pretty uh, impressive Series B funding <laughs> uh, cleared uh, as this technology rolls out. So, you know, with every advancement that, that we're seeing with the technology, they're also uh, working to kind of keep the costs manageable and, and uh, you know, pull things into alignment as they go with the rollout here so just really quickly uh, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about um, your work at IBM accessibility sure uh, what, do, what do you do there uh, well I'm part of the uh, IBM accessibility team which actually falls under IBM research uh, and so you know it's very interesting work I uh, you know it's really like no two days are the same <laughs> um, you know, my team at IBM, you know, our number one kind of responsibility has historically been to make sure that all the teams at IBM are doing things in an accessible way. Um, you know, whether you're developing a new software application or, you know, a smartphone app or, or wh whatever, you know, the various teams at IBM are working on, you know, our, our concern has been to make sure that they are kind of adopting the accessibility standards and, and doing things uh, that kind of follow, uh, you know, with the accessibility standards that exist. Right. Uh, and so, you know, with that, there's been kind of a lot of user testing as someone who relies on assistive technology myself to be able to use uh, the computer, you know, the ability to offer feedback to these various teams and, and say, you know, here's where you can make some changes. You know, you, you might want to tweak the contrast, uh, you know, that, that's being used of the, you know, text against the background in, in this case, or, you know, just as, as examples, be able to offer that kind of feedback. Um, but also, you know, many of my colleagues and I actually are also very active, um, you know, contributors to the, the standards. Um, you know, there are like the World Wide Web Consortium, uh, that works to kind of define those global standards for web accessibility. You know, we try and, and remain active roles or, or maintain active roles in, in kind of helping shape those standards. So we like to contribute actively to, uh, you know, what the future of accessibility will look like in that way as well. Um, 
aside from kind of the day-to-day, you know, tasks of of trying to enable the teams at IBM to do things in an accessible way, they're also what I kind of think of as, you know, I guess special projects that I, I get to work on that are always very interesting. Um, you know, there there is some interest uh, from my team here at IBM in, in the tests that we did at the Boston Marathon with the IRID technology. You know, candidly, I would love to see some of our Watson uh, capabilities uh, incorporated into the IRA solution just to, you know, kind of for, for whatever uh, enhancement or, or bolstering that that, that could bring. Um, but another project that I happen to be working on currently that I'm very excited about is uh, has to do with self-driving technology. Um, you know, as someone who myself had to give up driving 15 years ago, you know, the the prospects of, of self-driving technology are very exciting, but also, you know, full of uh, question marks. And, you know, as we've seen, you know, oftentimes can happen. Uh, there can be technologies that make it to the market without ever fully considering all possible users of that technology. Right. And where, you know, self-driving in my mind, uh, self-driving technology stands to uniquely benefit, you know, many with disabilities and many, you know, just naturally aging. Right. Uh, and so it would be a shame to see that technology kind of make it to the market without, you know, ensuring that users from these groups uh, are able to operate it independently. And so, you know, this uh, project that was announced earlier this year, IBM is partnered with a, a couple of organizations. Uh, one is the CTA Foundation, which is the group that puts on the Consumer Electronics Show every year in Las Vegas. Uh, and the other is the uh, a company called Local Motors. Uh, Local Motors is based in Arizona, uh, and they um, produce 3D printed vehicles. And so... One of their vehicles that they produce uh, is a shuttle van. It's a 12-person shuttle van called Ollie. Uh, and the um, Ollie shuttle actually already has Watson capabilities built right into it. Uh, and so the announcement that was made earlier this year at the CES uh, show in, in Las Vegas was that IBM and Local Motors and CTA Foundation were all going to work together uh, and work to make Ollie the most accessible self-driving vehicle that there is, uh, which is a bold claim. Uh, but, you know, we kind of left the CES show committed to return next year to the CES, uh, you know, with some uh, de- demonstrable examples of, uh, of how Ollie can be, uh, you know, an incredibly accessible self-driving vehicle. And so that's, uh, that's been a, an incredibly uh, gratifying project to be a part of. That's amazing. You know, you know, we might totally cool. we might have to actually reach out to you and and maybe bring you on to talk about just that for one of our future podcasts because yeah. that's fascinating stuff. Oh, well, yeah, to do a road absolutely. Trip. I mean, it's it's definitely an iterative process. Like we've uh, held workshops, you know, that uh, have included members of you know various disability organizations, but also you know uh, with the aging population and and so just including uh, members of of you know, these various groups and getting their feedback uh, has allowed us to really kind of develop some compelling use cases that at this point in the process, we're actually working on uh, putting actual solutions uh, to address some of the challenges that uh, have been expressed in these workshops. So it's, uh, it, you know, as it continues to develop, it, it would be exciting to come back and provide updates on it. Sounds good. It's a deal. 
All right, Eric, we're going to let you go. Well, actually, one question before we let you go. Do you do, sure. you, do you work with uh, Guido Corona? I don't work with Guido Corona directly, but I've heard the name. I'm not sure oh, how. Okay. Well, he's he's part of uh, IBM Accessibility, I think, in Texas. I think he's in Texas now. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, he's probably in uh in uh, part of the Austin team, like our uh, our advanced technology group uh, oh, okay. working. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. He used to be up in uh, Toronto. I, I touched base with him years ago over uh, OS two. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Oh my God! If I ever become a private detective, that is, that's going to be my name. OS two. No, Guido Corona. Guido Corona. That's amazing. Guido Corona, private detective. I love it. Well, he's a great guy. I was hoping you could say hi to him for me, but I'll, I'll have to do it myself. Well, I'll find him in the uh, email here. <laughs> All right, Eric. Thanks so much for uh, coming on and taking some time and talking with us. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks and, for having me, guys. Best of luck in the uh, upcoming triathlon. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, Eric, we will talk to you again soon. Very good. Very All right, thanks. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, I feel fat. I am fat. <laughs> <laughs> got to start doing my stairs more often. <laughs> well, get that tandem bike. You guys have been talking about doing a tandem bike for ages. That's true. That is true. Get her going. Well, uh, see, the issue will be... Well, we won't have an issue going down the hill, but as soon as Steve's got to pedal me, pedal my ass up the hill. <laughs> well, you have to pedal too. We just won't go in that direction. A tandem doesn't. We live on a hill. <laughs> well, it's fairly flat over towards the park in behind you here. Is it? Yeah. All right. Fair, so we'll just go around and around the park a few yeah, times. Exactly. So I think I think Ryan just thinks he just puts his feet up like that and just lets you that's pedal. Right. That's yeah. not what tandem means. No. Oh. Suspicion. That's uh, uh, that's what's going through his head. <laughs> hmm. Oh, but that's amazing. That's that's really we should actually try to maybe reach out to somebody from Ira and uh, mm-hmm. and talk a little bit about Write it down. about the app and yeah. uh, what's uh, what's coming. Yeah, see if they're actively developing it and what kind of stuff they've got. Because it's uh, I watched one of their promotional videos um, online oh, yeah. before the show, and it's pretty cool. Yeah, it looks like it's it's pretty cool stuff. So and it doesn't sound like the price point's all that prohibitive. No, it's I not mean, not bad at all. Given given what it can do for you, what a terrific service. Mm-hmm. That's that's crazy. It's, it's like being connected to the hive mind. That's right. Yeah. Well, and I think that they're absolutely right. I mean, I think that the the applications for it are limitless. Everything from helping with mail to, to uh, watching a softball game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I wouldn't have even thought of. So cool hey ryan rob where can people find us online at atbanter.com they can also email us if they so desire at atbanterpodcast at gmail.com and hey steve where can else where can else can they where can, can, else? Can, else? Where can else where can else can they get us well they can they can also get us at uh, let's see they can get us on the uh facebooks they can get us on the twitters uh yeah and, and I, you know i heard rumors of an instagram there are yes yeah. we were supposed to take pictures at our anniversary show of that and and didn't. something happened <laughs> go figure the anniversary show fell off the rails i mean who thought that could possibly happen well, with tequila that's right i you know what tequila actually wasn't originally part of the plan in our defense no, it's true. That it was, was a curveball thrown. Insider, I, I did, I did. But uh, see, you're the one typically taking pictures of the Instagram, and you yeah, barely okay. had any tequila, so there's okay, no excuse. Whatever. How's YouTube coming? Shut up, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, all right. I think that's going to do it for us to this week. Yay. I have been Robin O. I have been Steve Barkley. And I've been Ryan. Ryan who? <laughs> just Ryan. Just Ryan. <laughs> just Ryan. Are you like Beyonce uh, now? Just Ryan now, yeah. yeah. No, All right, everybody. Next, next week I'll be a symbol. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, sorry, I had images of what symbol could it be and going through my... Yeah, I'm sure. Yes. All right, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. All right, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. Music provided by bensound.com.